Let me invite you to, uh, one last time, to open to the book of Revelation, chapter 22. This is an auspicious occasion today as we will conclude our study of this great book. Yes, uh, Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21, if you can't see it through the... uh, through the ivy, depending on which direction you're looking. Beginning in verse 6 through verse 21, let's read our portion of God's uh, word today. Hear the word of the Lord. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. And in the holy city, which are described in this book, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. May the Lord bless this uh, final portion of his word. And let's ask briefly for his help as we uh, start today and conclude our study. Heavenly Father, as we bring our study of this great book to a close, one more time, please give us insight into the truth of this often mysterious and misunderstood book. Strengthen our hearts and minds to understand what your word says in these concluding paragraphs. Lord, strengthen me in my weakness. Help me to preach clearly and think clearly. And as hearers, give us listening ears. Uh, work in and among us. May your truth be living and active as you describe it in Hebrews 4.12. May it be sharper than a double-edged blade. May it cut and uh, perform surgery where needed. May it mend our wounds where needed. Jesus, we commit our time to you and ask this in your precious name. Amen. People's last words before they die are sometimes the ones that are remembered the most. Uh, Sometimes those final words can be quite profound when a famous person passes away or a famous Christian man or woman passes away. Sometimes their 
words go down in history. Uh, other times, their words can be not so profound, uh, not so well remembered, or f completely forgettable. And into this category falls the next two examples. One is the Irish uh, poet uh, and playwright Oscar Wilde, whose uh, final words were, either that wallpaper goes or I do. I believe the wallpaper outlasted Wilde and that uh, he passed away at his room in Paris before slipping into a coma that lasted for nine days. Not quite so uh, ridiculous as Wilde's, but Winston Churchill's final words were, I'm bored with it all. Uh, Churchill, the great leader of uh, England during World War II, uh, prime minister of that country twice in his life. But then going back to the other side, uh, on a more profound note, uh, come the words of John Wesley, the great uh, English reformer. On March 2nd, 1791, just before he passed away, Wesley opened his eyes and exclaimed in a strong and clear voice, the best of all is, God is with us. And that uh, great reformer passed into the presence of the Lord with those final words. Perhaps, perhaps the best and most profound example of famous last words were those of Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen. Uh, this is kind of the stuff legends are made of. Uh, on the day he died, his good friend came to his uh, lodgings and reported to him that the book he had finished publication, The Glory of Christ, had just gone to the printers. Uh, to this, Owen replied, I am glad to hear it. But, oh, Brother Payne, the long-wished-for day is come at last, in which I shall see that glory in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world. Now, that's a really worthy last sentiment to leave the world with. I, I'm glad my book's being published about Christ's glory. I'm on my way to see it in person. Well, we come to more famous last words today. Obviously, these uh, don't come right before Christ died. They are his final words to his church in the book of Revelation. Uh, in fact, these are not only the final words of Revelation, they're the final words of the entire Bible because with these last words of Christ, the door closes on the canon of Scripture. So what are Christ's final words to the church? How does Christ end his letter to the New Testament church? Those are words worth hearing. The final words of Christ contain three commands. Christ concludes the book of Revelation and the entire Bible with three commands. His first command is keep the words of this book. And we'll see this command in verses 6 through 9. His second command is keep your clothes clean. And we'll see that described and explained in verses 10 through 15. And then his third command to the church is give testimony about this book. And we'll discover that in verses 16 through 21 of our passage today. His first command, though, is keep the words of this book. Follow the words of this book. Obey the words of Revelation. We see this main thought, this first main command in verse 7. If you look down in verse 7 in your copy of God's Word, it says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, John gives us four reasons in this first section uh, why we should obey the words of this book, why we should keep the words of Revelation. 
Uh, the first reason that he gives us in this section is because God is the author. Uh, God is the author of these words. Of course, the Apostle John is the human author. Uh, uh, John writes, but John writes only as he is carried along by the Spirit of God. God is the primary author. Look with me at verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The angel that had been speaking to John since uh, the last chapter, chapter 21, continues to speak here in verse 6, and he refers to the book of Re Revelation first as trustworthy, meaning that these words are unfailing, dependable. Uh, these events are, are sure to happen. Uh, and then he says, secondly, trustworthy and true. They're genuine. They're authentic. These are not false words. They convey truth. And through these two terms, trustworthy and true, the angel declares that the book of Revelation is absolutely reliable and the events are certain to happen. So Dr. Joel Beakey comments that this is a clear statement of the authenticity, infallibility, and inerrancy of this divinely inspired book that John wrote and delivered to the church. Well, the angel goes on in the second half of the verse to explain why the events of Revelation are certain to happen. Verse 6 goes on to say, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And so the angel reveals that God is the one who controls the spirits of the prophets and tells the prophets what to say. Uh, Peter describes it like this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This is a, an important and sweeping statement about the authorship of the New Testament in particular, and the whole Bible in general. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that word carried along is used in the ancient world to describe the way the wind would fill the sails of a sailing vessel just as the wind would fill the sails and carry a ship along a body of water, so the Spirit of God filled the sails, so to speak, of these apostles and prophets and guided them and led them along with what they should say and what they should write down. This angel has been acting in this capacity as Christ's authoritative representative. Because it says here in the second half of verse 6 that the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel. That is an important term. It's the word apostello from which we get our word apostle. An apostle uh, someone operating as this angel does is a designated and authoritative representative sent by his master to declare something. And so this angel has been acting as a apostle, so to speak. He has been sent by Christ to bring this authorized message, these words and visions to John in the church. In other words, to sum up, uh, the nub that the angel is saying is, these aren't my words. These are Christ's words. Again, listen to Dr. Beakey. This book has the divine signature of Jesus on it. Revelation is not the product of a fevered imagination of an old man on a rocky island. Neither is it the wishful thinking of a persecuted church. The visions John sees are inspired by God himself. The words he hears are the very words of Christ delivered by the angel to the apostle 
for the church. Well, so the first reason then why you and I should keep the words of this book, observe the words of this book, follow the words of this book, is because God is the author of these words. God is the divine author behind John, uh, carrying him along. The second reason that we should keep the words of this book is because Christ is coming soon. Jesus Christ is coming soon. He could come at any moment. His return is imminent. Look at verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The word soon is what I want you to look at in verse 7. It was also used in the phrase right above this in, at the end of verse 6. Uh, uh, it, it has the idea of, of, of it must happen quickly. It must happen at once. This happens without delay. This happens in a short time. Uh, this is the idea behind soon. Pretty much just like we mean in the English language, the Greek word means the same thing. And then note the verb here in verse 7, I am coming soon. Uh, it, Jesus doesn't say, I will return soon, but he says, I am coming. I am in the process of returning. It means he's already started on the way. I'm already, my, my foot is on the top step, so to speak, he says. And so the things that we've studied and read in the book of Revelation, uh, because of this phrase, uh, they don't await some future date to, to begin to take place. These events are already in progress, are already occurring. Uh, we've seen this in some of the seal judgments. We've seen that the seal judgments have been unfolding ever since Christ ascended uh, to um, his Father's right hand. The wars that we've seen, the, the diseases we've seen. Again, I put COVID-19, uh, uh, I attribute that to uh, the breaking of the fourth seal along with other plagues and illnesses that have swept through the world since Christ ascended to the Father's right hand. These things have already begun, and they have been ongoing since Christ rose from the dead to his Father's right hand. That's why Christ can say, Behold, I am coming soon. So one Bible scholar says, The things that have been predicted are taking place even now so that the consummation itself, that is the conclusion when Christ comes, the big wrapping up of things, so that the consummation itself is imminent indeed. The term soon expresses the sober reality that the consummation is at hand. Now, I, don't, I know that all of you don't necessarily agree with my view of the book of Revelation, but I firmly believe that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. Uh, you would, some of you might raise your hand, uh, but what about the revival amongst the Jews that should take place first? I put it to you that it's already happening. More Jews are coming to faith in Christ uh, in the last decade. I, I, I'm going to be careful here. There's, a, there's an awesome statistic. And wow, it's cool, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, there is a tremendous number of Jewish people coming to faith in Christ, more so than in all the years of previous history. So I would put it to you, if you say, what about the revival amongst the Jews? I would put it to you, it's already happening. Many of the things that we've described, that we see in Scripture, are already taking place. He's returning soon. We should observe his commands. We should keep the words of this book because his return is so close. As one, as I like to say, and as I read again this week, it's closer than it's ever been. Uh, stating the obvious, I realize, uh, but Christ himself puts it like this in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, 
Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. There was an explorer named Sir Ernest Shackleton. He led many expeditions to the Antarctic. And on one of his expeditions, he was forced to leave several of his men behind on Elephant Island. He intended to return for them and carry them back to England. But uh, as he was drawn away from them, he was unavoidably delayed. And by the time he could go back for them, he found to his dismay that the sea between him and Elephant Island had already frozen over and his men were cut off. Three times he tried to reach his men, but his efforts failed. And finally, in one final effort, he found a narrow channel through the ice through which he was able to take his ship and reach his men finally. Guiding his ship back to the island, he was delighted to discover that not only were his men alive, they were prepared to get on board. They were packed and ready to go. And when they had embarked on their return trip to England, after the excitement of their uh, reunion had passed, Sir Ernest uh, inquired how it was that they were ready to get on board so quickly. And they told him that every morning their leader rolled up his sleeping bag saying, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. Get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. Christ might come before I finish this sermon. Yes, and all God's people said, oh, wouldn't that be a relief? Anytime, Lord. I heard that quick amen from Steve Saylor out there. So the question is, are you ready to go? I know you say you're ready to go. Gosh, who isn't sick of the state of the country and things like that right now? When your master comes, will he find you so doing, as Jesus says in this last phrase? Blessed is the servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. Will Christ find you keeping the words of this book when he returns? Uh, Keeping your garments clean? Or will he find you uh, uh, spotted and polluted by the world and the culture we live in? We keep the words of this book uh, because not only is God the author, Because Christ is on the way. His foot is on the top step. And he's coming soon. Well, John gives us a third reason why we should keep the words of this book. Not only uh, is God the author, and not only is Christ coming soon, the third reason he gives is because John was an eyewitness to the things that he is writing about. John saw and heard these things personally. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Uh, This is a formula uh, that was common in his day. Uh, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Heard and saw. Those two important words are the basis uh, for a legal testimony about something. So John in essence, is declaring under oath that he personally heard and saw these things. He said something like this in the Gospel of John. He said, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true, John 21, 24. 
John is asserting with this statement the authenticity of, we, of what he's written in Revelation. Sometimes you and I do something similar to like this when we're explaining something to someone. We sometimes throw it in the phrase, we sometimes throw in the phrase, I saw it with my own two eyes. That's what John is saying. I saw this with my own two eyes. And I know what I saw. The one who's writing this is telling the truth. I, I, I personally saw and heard the things I have written down for you. And I know what I heard. And this is what John is doing through this phrase. He is declaring under oath the authenticity of the account he has written down and described. It's a first-hand account. This is not some crazy version of the game telephone where you tell a, 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 a phrase into someone's ear and they pass it around the circle and by the time it comes back to you, you know, it's changed entirely by the time it returns to you. This is not the game of telephone. John has heard these firsthand. That's the third reason why we should keep the words of this book. And then finally... One final reason is uh, because it glorifies God. We should keep the words of this book to glorify God. Uh, Christ must be central in our worship and nothing else. Look as verse 8 continues. About the middle of verse 8, John says, And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. This is now the second time that John has made the mistake of trying to worship an angel. He did it back in chapter 19 after uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb was revealed to him. And so here for the second time, John substitutes a false object of worship, which is the angel, for the true object of worship, which is Jesus Christ. I want you just to pause and note that this sinful, substitute, uh, sinful substitution is a mistake that even faithful Christians can make. Because we have here none other than one of Christ's own apostles falling down at the feet of an angel. This man who leaned on Jesus' breast at the, at the Last Supper, this man who was with Christ personally falling down at the feet of an angel, how much more tempting is this false worship for lesser mortals like you and I? We keep the words of this book. We keep Christ. As our central focus, we let the words of Christ richly dwell within us because this glorifies God. We keep the words of this book because it glorifies God. This is Christ's first command. In these final words to the church, uh, he commands the church to keep the words of this book, to follow the words of this book, to obey the words of Revelation, and four reasons, because God is the author, because Christ is coming soon, because John was an eyewitness, and because it glorifies God. Well, we go on to see the second command in Christ's final words. And the second command he gives his church is to keep your clothes clean. Uh, a figurative way of saying keep your lives clean or continue to bear fruit as a follower of Christ. And this controlling idea we see down in verse 14. Look in your copy of the words, Blessed are those who wash their robes. And around this controlling idea, John uh, gives us three reasons why we should keep our clothes clean or keep our robes clean. And the first reason that we should keep our clothes clean is because the church is indifferent. The church 
is indifferent. Many of the churches that John was writing to had begun to compromise with the culture around them and begun to cool off spiritually. Remember that the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, there are only two of them. Uh, two of those seven churches that aren't corrected in some way by Christ. Five of the seven had some varying degree of spiritual indifference or apathy uh, from uh, the church at Ephesus, uh, where Christ said, remember from where you have fallen, you have left your first love, all the way to the extreme of that uh, church where Christ stands outside and knocks at the door for entrance. There are varying degrees of, of indifference, but five of the seven represent some kind of spiritual indifference. To those churches in, in particular, Christ addresses this second command, keep your robes clean. Keep your clothes clean. Look at verse 10 where we see uh, this indifference uh, explained. Verse 10 says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And again, we hear that note of urgency. The time is near, or it could say, the time is at hand. The, the events of Revelation have begun to already unfold. Christ's return is near, and the church needs to be shocked out of her indifference. And look at how Christ shocks the church in verse 11. It says, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. It almost sounds as if Christ is promoting sin. Of course he isn't. Uh, and remember as you read those words that these words aren't written to those outside the church, to unbelievers. These are words written to people inside the church, uh, to people who profess to follow Christ, to people who, who claim to know and follow him. Christ is not promoting sin. He's telling John to let those false Christians continue in their indifferent and hardened condition. Let them continue in their current state so that they can be revealed for what they truly are. Let, let those professors in the habit of doing wrong stay in that state so they can be recognized as professors and not the real deal. In the Gospels, in more than one place, Jesus explains that we discern genuine believers from professing believers. It's the Gospel truth. We discern genuine believers from professing believers by the kind of fruit they bear, by the kind of lives they live. It is one of the plainest facts in the Bible. You can tell whether someone is a believer or not by the kind of fruit that comes from the tree. And so Jesus says this, one of the places Jesus says this is in Luke chapter 6. And he says, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Uh, a believer will not habitually bear bad fruit. Certainly we will stumble in sin on occasion. But a good tree, no good tree consistently bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. An unbeliever cannot consistently bear good fruit before the world. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth 
speaks. It is one of the plainest facts of God's word that you will know a tree by its fruit. You will know a genuine believer from a mere professor by the kind of life they live. In 1938, there was a painting being auctioned at, 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 at Southby's in London. And this painting was filthy. It was yellowed and unframed. It was a picture of uh, an Italian, it was an Italian picture of Mary. Uh, the Madonna. Uh, so in 1938, as the richest man in the world looked at this painting, his name is John Paul Getty, as he looked at this painting, he said to himself, it looks something like a Raphael, the Italian master. He liked the painting and bought it for $112. Uh, he kept the painting uncleaned and in storage until... Uh, decades later, when a restorer began to remove that uh, scum of varnish that had yellowed it and discovered that, in fact, the painting was an authentic, genuine Raphael worth far more than $112. By your fruits, you will know them. There may be an occasion when sin puts a yellow varnish over the top of our lives. But make no mistake that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ your life will reveal that you are the genuine article. Or not. So can I just pause and ask you? You know the kind of fruit that believers are called to produce? Galatians 5 gives us a pretty clear picture. Is your fruit consistent with your claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Do your actions match up with that claim you make to be a follower of Christ? Or do they prove altogether that you're something different and that your profession is false. That's why Christ says this to the church, to shock them. What those professors continue to do, what they're doing. Now, if any of them happened to be genuine followers of Christ, they would hear this and they would be shocked. And these prophetic words were meant to shock believers, genuine believers, out of their indifference and to bring them to repentance, to turn their backs on that unchristlike behavior, that, that bad fruit, and would bring them to cleanse their robes in the blood of the Lamb, to, to clean their garments, which is what. John describes back in chapter 7, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Believers keep their robes clean by continually washing them in the atoning death of Christ. Our, our lives are like the laundry that must be done every week. Every week, Christie's having to wash our clothes. They keep getting dirty. Because we keep wearing them. And it is no different that you and I are called on a regular basis to, to, to keep our robes cleansed from daily sin. 
In fact, the book of 1 John says it like this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Have you ever been around somebody who didn't know their clothes were dirty? And it's obvious to everybody within three feet that, man. You know, I used to work with junior high students. Enough said. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so these words are written to, to shock the indifferent church, the indifferent believers uh, that John is addressing in these seven churches. And, and, and Christ goes on to say in verse 11, look at how verse 11 goes on, and the righteous still do right, and, and let the holy still be holy. Let them continue. Uh, let those, on the other hand, who's, who bear good fruit continue to do so. And so this second command, keep your clothes clean, is given because of the spiritual indifference and apathy and cooling off of their spiritual fervor uh, in these churches. Indifferent believers need to wash their robes and make them white in, in the blood of the Lamb. But John goes on from this. Uh, uh, not only because of their indifferent state does he say this, but he goes on further to say, because when Christ returns, he will reward the fruit that you are bearing. The very things he's, caused, he's called you to turn from or continue in, he will reward that life that he or she lives. Look at verse 12 now in, in your Bible. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. This is not new news. This is consistent with the teaching of the New Testament. Christ says in Matthew 16, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Not according to what you profess to be, but according to what you have done. And God's word tells us further in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Christ, when he comes, and it's soon, will come repaying people for the fruit they have borne. Look at the reason that Christ can do this. Look at the, the reason. What gives him the authority to reward fruit in this way? Look at verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega is a title first used, um, uh, first applied to God the Father. I believe that's in chapter 1. Here Jesus uses this title uh, for himself to demonstrate that he is equal with the Father. This stresses the deity or the divinity of Christ, that he is God. He has the ability and the authority to repay each one for what he's done because he himself as the second person of the Trinity is God. These titles of 13 affirm the deity of Christ. I, I want you to see another thing these titles do. They also affirm his complete sovereignty over history. Alpha and Omega, uh, we've noted previously, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Christ says, I am the Alpha. I'm the first, I'm the beginning, and then I'm the omega, I'm the last, I am the end. Christ is the creator and consummator 
of all history. He stands behind all that takes place and directs events to his intended conclusion. Just kind of let that settle in. That's a mouthful. Christ, the creator and consummator of all history. He begins everything. He concludes everything. And of course, that implies everything in between the beginning and the end. As history unfolds, he stands sovereign over all. I hope that's a comfort to you. To know that whatever unfolds in the world is not random. Confusing? Certainly. Not understanding how it fits into God's sovereign plan? Certainly. How the events that have happened to you fit into God's plan for you? Confusing? Of course. But that He is the Alpha and Omega. He created and will consummate all history. That His hand guides and directs Oh, think of, think, of, think of what this entails. Every event between the beginning and the end. Just a massive, powerful, sovereign Christ ruling over it all. This gives him authority to reward fruit. This gives him the right when he comes to say, you deserve this. Enter into the joy of the Lord. When Christ returns, he will reward a person in keeping with the kind of life he or she lives. This is why we wash our robes. Because Christ will reward fruit. There's a one final reason why to keep our clothes clean. And that is, as you may have already guessed, to inherit our salvation. We keep our clothes clean to inherit fully and finally our salvation at the return of Christ. We keep our clothes clean to inherit and receive our eternal reward. John describes two rewards here in this uh, third reason. Uh, the first reward that he describes is salvation. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that, or with the result that, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. The word wash in that first half of verse 14 is a present participle it stresses ongoing repeated washing we we wash our clothes wash or wash whatever you prefer we do it daily uh, even moment by moment we cleanse ourselves washing them in the blood of the lamb we continually confess our sin and turn away from it whenever the spirit brings it a light uh, those attempting to live holy and righteous lives in the power of the Spirit, they will inherit eternal life in the new heaven and new earth. Verse 14 goes on to say, they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Those two things, 
were promised in chapters 2 and 3 to the churches that conquered. Uh, to the church in Ephesus, Christ promised, uh, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And uh, to the ones in Philadelphia, Christ promised to part in the new Jerusalem. To all who turn to Jesus as their Savior and Lord and persevere in their faith and continue in their faith, and conquer through the power of the Holy Spirit, these Christ will reward with salvation in the new Jerusalem, their final and eternal salvation. This is the first reward of keeping your clothes clean. There is unfortunately a second reward, if reward is the word. The second reward for those who do not keep their clothes clean. And the second reward John goes on to describe is damnation. Eternal separation from the gracious presence of God in the lake of fire. Verse 15 says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's this last phrase I want to begin with. Uh, more than just unbelievers who are deceitful, those outside of the church who, who practice falsehood, again, uh, this is more along the lines of those in the church, those who make a false profession of faith, Pseudo-Christians, in other words. Uh, this is a reference to uh, those who profess to know Christ but demonstrate by their fruit that they are liars. These practice sorcery, it says in verse 15. Uh, the word is pharmakeia. It involves the use of drugs for the use of magic. Uh, certainly can involve drug use in general. They practice sexual immorality, which refers to any sexual act outside of the covenant of marriage. They are murderers. They are idolaters. And in general, their lives are a lie because they claim to be believers but really are not. These professing believers, these false believers do not inherit eternal life in the new Jerusalem, but are condemned to the lake of fire outside the city. As verse 15 begins, outside are the dogs. The second reward, if reward is the word, is damnation. So we keep our clothes clean to inherit salvation, to take part of the tree of life, to enter the city by the gates, and so that we're not left outside, having proved ourselves to be false Christians. It's only by continually cleansing our robes, by continually turning away from our sin, by continuing to conquer to the end that we receive our eternal reward. Friend, do you get the idea that your holiness matters? Your holiness matters. And so Christ's second command, keep your clothes clean. Keep your robes clean. Bear fruit. Persevere to the end. Wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Is there something you need to be cleansed from this morning? As a follower of the Lord Jesus, have you been cherishing some sin? Has he called you to leave it behind, but you just can't seem to let go? Really does matter. And instead of cherishing that sin, God's word calls you to hate it. To hate it. To turn your back on it. To understand that it will eat you up. To understand that the continuing practice of it might interfere with how things end out. Not because you'll lose your salvation. If you're a genuine follower of Christ, you could never do that. But it might prove that you were never genuine to start off with. Christ still might come before the sermon's over. So There's one more command he gives his church. He's called his church to keep the words of this book. He's called his church, secondly, to keep their clothes clean. Keep your robes clean, he says. And then the third command in this final portion is to give testimony about this book. Bear witness about Revelation. And we find this central idea woven throughout this third section. He uses the word testify and bear testimony at least three times here. And Christ summons his church to testify or bear witness to four things. First, he calls you and me to bear witness that man is accountable. Man is accountable. You can hardly utter a more hateful thing in public that people are accountable for their actions. Uh, but look at what verse 16 says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Uh, the word testify means to solemnly assert something, to offer a firsthand report of facts. Jesus is using this word testify in this sentence with its full legal implications. It implies that those who hear the testimony will be held accountable for what they've heard and that there is a penalty for ignoring or disobeying this testimony. Believers and professing believers, and you and I are in there somewhere, will be held accountable for the legal testimony that we've heard in the book of Revelation. We're responsible to keep and obey this first-hand account of the facts that came from Christ through the angel and then to John. We have been given a legal testimony that we are held accountable for. The weight of this testimony, the, the import of this testimony is based on who the giver of the testimony is. Uh, and Christ calls himself at the end of verse 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the fulfiller of prophecy. As, uh, it's as if Christ is saying, I'm the one who fulfills history and brings about this new redemptive day. I'm the one doing these things. That's why my testimony is authentic and true. That is why those who hear it are held accountable. You've heard the phrase, star witness, before in a trial. 
some alleged authority takes the witness stand and gives his uh, medical or forensic opinion on the facts of a legal trial. And Christ is, of course, the star witness. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the fulfiller of all history. And this is my testimony that I'm giving to the churches. So you and I, we've heard the testimony. And we're accountable for it. And called to share this testimony of the contents of the book to the people around us. uh, Believers as well as unbelievers. Christ calls you and me to testify and bear witness that man is accountable for the contents of this book. The second thing we're called to give testimony about is about the source of eternal life. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And the Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of Christ's church wells up a longing for Him to come back. Uh, By the Spirit, the church longs for her bridegroom, and and come expresses the church's desire for Christ to finish His plan for history and and return for His church. Uh, Verse 17 goes on to say, uh, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price to to, to thirsty souls outside these walls, to those without Christ in our world, Christ calls you and me to testify, to bear witness about the source of eternal life, that Jesus lifts up his voice to, to those who don't know Christ and says, come and drink. Oh, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. Come receive forgiveness and eternal life free of charge. Christ offers eternal life to all who will turn from sin and trust in his atoning death. Christ calls us to testify about the source of eternal life. Christ calls us thirdly to testify about the completeness of God's word. Uh, These are two extremely important verses about The sufficiency of Scripture, verses 18 and 19. Uh, He begins, I warn everyone, or here's our word, testify again. I testify to everyone. I give an authoritative eyewitness account. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the, in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Take note that eternity hangs in the balance with your disposition and posture towards Scripture. It is with good reason that we call it sacred Scripture because God says anyone who, who adds to this I will add to him the plagues. And if anyone takes from it, I will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city. This screams that the word of God is sufficient and final for every spiritual need that you and I have. And it brings to conclusion not only the book of Revelation, but the entire Bible. The pure words of God. So we're called to testify about uh, the completeness of God's word. And then one more time, we are called to testify that Christ is coming soon. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. 
John replies with his own, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And reminding us that this is all a letter written to churches. He concludes, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. So what are Christ's final words to the church? How does he end his letter to the New Testament church? Indeed, how does he conclude the entire Bible? He ends it with three commands. Keep the words of this book. Uh, Secondly, keep your clothes clean or your robes clean. And then finally, bear testimony, bear witness about the things contained in this book that man is accountable for its contents and that this word is a sufficient record of spiritual life. Let me pray as we conclude. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this account, though often confusing. uh, It is your description of the end times. As we continue to mull over it in days and years to come, continue to give us clarity of mind and heart about your plan. Above and over everything, we thank you, Christ, that you stand as the sovereign Lord of history as the Alpha and Omega. And Jesus, we bow and worship you as the ruler of history. I pray that we would continue our worship you and keep and, and please enable us to keep you central as we uh, enter and carry on through this Advent season. Jesus, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.